Red, and in color from the NBC News radio broadcasting studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone today. Hope everybody having a great day. My name is Rob Starr. I'm one of the hosts, and the other host will be here in just a second is Mr. Mike, or I call Mikey Pedia Baron. He's uh, stuck in traffic, but he should be here in just a moment. Hope everybody had a great week. Uh, I was gone last week because I was really sick. I had uh, bronchitis. I sounded like Froggy two weeks before that. And uh, trying, to, trying to recover. Still a little cough. I finished all my medicine, but I think I'll call him in the morning and my doctor and say, hey, I need some more stuff. Anyway, I hope everybody had a great week. Uh, we have some good things happening tonight. Uh, I probably want to go right to our uh, purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing a whole lot better than I've been in the last two weeks. Felt like a, <laughs> well, that's good. <clears throat> felt like a truck hit me. I woke up. I woke up. You know, I was coughing, and I think I got what what Mike had. And I woke up one morning. I thought I bit my tongue. I get up and go in the bathroom, turn the light on. I see this like golf ball sized thing sticking out of my neck, and it was my lymph node gland swollen. Oh my word! And then I noticed I had blotches all over, and uh, it was bad. It was bad. So anyway, went to the doctor. He gave me what. Uh, the good antibiotics and some cough syrup with codeine, which I couldn't take all day long because I was at work and the la- or when I went back to work, I don't want to take it to, to go to sleep at work. That's <laughs> not the right thing to do. So, uh, but anyway, I'm feeling better. I may cough in between a little bit, but I'll try to try to keep it to a minimum. Okay. But I I know there's lots of things happening in the world of water, and I know the oh, one person the one person who knows week. it is you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we know about the snowpack. What's the biggest thing that you heard this week? Well, I, it's not the biggest thing I've heard. It's the biggest thing we are all waiting to hear. Yeah. Um, widely expected an announcement from the state that they're going to move to a one-tunnel option in some way. How they're going to do that, we don't know. You know, Jerry Brown wants to get this thing at least approved before he leaves office. So the big question, in my mind at least, is, is moving to a one-tunnel option going to require new environmental documentation? Because yep. if it does, then we got, no a long, we got a long, we got a long time for that. So, yeah, it's never going to be done before he leaves office. So there, but I, uh, I, my understanding is they're trying to go with a phase uh, construction. So they, they, in that instance, they're at least trying to argue that they wouldn't need new environmental documentation because they're just going to build in phases. But I haven't heard the official word on that, and it's. And we've all been waiting all week because, you know, they we, they sort of signaled that this is the week that the administration's going to announce what they're going to do. So we're all waiting for that. Well, what, what happens, you know, it's like engineering and marketing. They Marketing says, hey, we want this product. Engineering starts, okay, great. And they agree, agree to the strategy and what they're going to do and the cost and how long it's going to take. And they start moving down that road. And then marketing comes back six months later and says, hey, we need a change. What, oh, yeah. What's going to happen? What what could happen if they start the single single tunnel and then everybody says, you know, we really need the the dual tunnel. What's, what's well, the problem with the second tunnel is that um, it's the agriculture districts in the Central Valley that don't want to pay for it. Right. So the single tunnel really is the state water project contractors only, which includes Metropolitan, which includes you know Southern California. So you know. If if they say, "Gosh, we really want the second tunnel," and they come up with the money, then I think that then they go, "Great, here we go." But um, if there's, you know, if, if the Central Valley farmers don't want to pay for it, then it's not going to get built for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, put it that way. Well, so, you know, people have to pay. The federal government has said, "You know, we're not going to pay for this for our for that share of the tunnels. You farmers are going to have to." And uh, most of the farmers don't want to. They agree that it needs to be built, but not to the point where they're they're willing to fork it over. And from a farmer's point of view, you you have to remember that these are farmers that have received water for ten, fifteen, twenty-five dollars an acre foot that are now going to be faced with three hundred dollars an acre foot or more, perhaps. And right. it's, that's a basic input into your farming operation, yeah. and that's going to significantly change your bottom line. Well, it's and, gonna, you know, you know, right? they're just going to pass it on. 
uh, yeah, which means prices are going to rise. But you know, they're uh, it's it's uh, it's a tough decision for them to you know take such a thing on. The Kern County farmers uh, said, okay, we'll we'll agree, but they only agreed to about half of what they usually get. Yeah. So you know, that's another twist in there. They say, well, we'll pay for our half on the state water project. And and that and then of course that means that there's potentially water available now in the state water project. So, you know, people on the state water project side are are not having a problem with this, but it is going to leave uh, the Central Valley out. But if they don't pay for it, then they're not going to get it. Yeah, uh, like everything is everything goes up in in the world. Nothing nothing gets reduced in fees. <laughs> No, and, and, you know, the thing is, is that uh, when when they were developing the Central Valley, you know, doing the water, uh, you know, building the water projects and turning it into farmland, um, the policy out in those years was to build food security for America. So taxpayers paid for a lot of those water projects that now deliver, you know, cheap water to farmers that make money off it. They, they do pay it back. To a certain extent, but they don't. But you know, the the general accounting office has found that you know, in a large part, they they're not. Their contracts don't pull enough money from them. So, mm. you know, well, it, can, it, couldn't couldn't the state couldn't the state finance part of it and make some deal with the with with the farmers so they can pay it back over a period of time? Well, the you know, I think that that's kind of politically unpopular. The whole idea now is, um, you know, it's beneficiaries pay. And this is a very controversial project. So legislators, you know, just saying they could do something like that, legislators would have to agree. And the legislators are not, I mean, that's, that's a mixed bag there, too. They're not, you know, no one should think that the whole state is in on this tunnels project. Only a portion of it is. Yeah. It's very controversial. Up there in the north, you know, they see this as a Southern California water grab. And, you know, some some see it that way, and some are, you know, there's a quite a, a large contingent of people that are against it. Yeah. Well, we will see as the water flows over the next several months, but the... Yeah, well, we had the water guy, the water agency guy on who was, who, who uh, voted no. Right, from Westlands... Uh, yeah. Yeah, but 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 they had a point that said, if we invest these uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, we get no guarantee that we'll get any more water than we're currently getting. So they can't couldn't uh, you know sure. in all honesty vote for that to um, tell all their farmers that that own the water district you know that uh, hey yeah let's spend all this money but no guarantees. Right. So, but and, and reclamation kind of said. You know, well, you're you're kind of on your own, Westland. You know, they sort of said to the other farmers, "Well, you guys probably don't have to participate. Probably not going to benefit you much." So, so Westland was the only one sitting around there ready to to uh, you know sign on the dotted line, but they weren't going to be the only ones. You know, wait a minute, that's awfully expensive for us. Well, there's a lot of variables going in going on with respect to the what's going to actually happen with the. Uh, the that project, the big water fix. Um, any predictions? Um, you know, I think they're going to have to go to the one to the single tunnel option. But how that's going to play out is um, is it we're we're going to have to wait and see. You know, if it doesn't get done during this administration, I don't know what the future is. I mean. California has been lucky in a sense that with the Schwarzenegger administration and with the, the Brown administration, they made uh, they made water kind of a priority. But in previous administrations, after the peripheral canal went down in, in a you know, resounding defeat, ninety eight percent against, two wow. percent for. Um, it sort of became this third rail, and for decades, a couple decades, nobody touched it. Nobody wanted to try and deal with water, and we just sort of limped along. So we've had actually an amazing streak with Schwarzenegger and Brown that they're willing to take this issue on. Uh, who comes in next may very well just 
wash their hands of it. I mean, it's it's um, it's such a contentious uh, issue that it's really hard to for politicians to take. I think to take a really strong stand because they're they're gonna whichever way they go, they're gonna piss off a portion of their constituency in most cases. Yeah, that's true. You well, know. it's going to take another crisis, unfortunately, I think, to move the ball forward and get something done. And uh, speaking of moving or uh, of another <laughs> crisis, uh, <laughs> what, what do you hear about uh, the, re- the the return of the drought? You know, there's oh uh, my word. Well, you know, people point out, and it's true that you know there's still a couple months to go, but um, there's. No rain in sight, at least till mid-February, and the snow survey today was very paltry. Uh, just 14% at the survey location, but, you know, statewide wasn't much better, about 27%. So, you know, we're it's not looking good in terms of precipitation. And if we were to get anywhere near normal, it would probably be some massive storms and incredible destructive flooding at this yeah, that, point. Yeah. I've heard that discussed, that now we see these atmospheric rivers, that those events really comprise the bulk of our precipitation in any given season, so that it's not as even every, you know, every week there's a little bit of rain. It's it's like if we do have rain, it, it comes in this voluminous... And, and, and it's quick and it goes away. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It's, it's just a handful of storms every year. Um, that either make it or break it, um, and there is still time. We could have a March, a March, a March miracle, a awesome April. A, you know, whatever. let's let's hope for that uh, because otherwise, I, I ventured to predict that if in fact on April first, you know, we have that paltry or that lack of snowpack in the, that that April 1st measurement that we might very well go back into an emergency drought condition with uh, I, Governor Brown. I would Brown. imagine so. I mean, in a way, I would, I would say I would almost hope so, because we have actually, we've been blessed in a sense. We have uh, full reservoirs relatively across the state, except for Oroville, which has its issues. Um, so we're, we're not in a bad situation. But it would not be smart, I think, to draw those reservoirs down deeply. Um, yeah, in the first year of the year. drought. Yeah, and that's that's the tough thing, isn't it? Because as we start a year and we have some rain, not too much rain, and we're a little bit below average, and it's almost like the second or third year it takes get, getting that far into that new drought period that you finally say, oh, my gosh, we, we do have a drought. Because in 2014, Governor Brown did – declare a voluntary reduction. I think it was 15%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, positive reaction to that. There wasn't the kind of meaningful reduction in water consumption that we saw in 2015 when the communication was very effective, when the uh, outreach by the water agencies was quite dynamic. Um, and then we did see a very significant reduction in statewide uh, water consumption. Well, you know, it's going to be interesting coming up. <clears throat> I think it's next week, the Urban Water Institute. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have a topic on, uh, and, and I know the mayor of Riverside is going to give his portion on it, on who really owns the water. And that's going to be interesting to see, you know, who's going to, even though the state says something, who really owns that water and who's going to really control that. And speaking of, the, the state water board's proposed rulemaking on wasteful water uses, they're going to change the proposed text to that. And I guess they're going to yeah. have more public comment. And they're, we yeah, have they're, more fi- rules. <laughs> they're finalizing that and, and getting into, uh, you know, to trying to just make some of the these most basic things just, you know, like like you shouldn't wash your car without, a, like, a, a sprayer on the end. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, do, do people really wash their cars and just let the water run out the bottom of the hose? I I imagine they must. I can't imagine. I, I think they do, but it's very. I think it's very low in in that most people. Well, that's already against California state law. I mean, that was something that was made permanent uh, after the 2015 drought emergency. You can't water during a rainstorm or within 48 hours after, after rain. Right. Yeah, you know, but yeah. but but those are things that we have to 
act upon voluntarily in a sense because there isn't, you know, they don't have the police yet going out and inspecting for that. Uh, but they can hire well, the Euro Patrol. That's well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. We got to get it spiffy and yes. uh, ready to go go out there. Well, uh, any other uh, interesting facts that you've uh, uncovered this past week with respect to water? Well, the, the other thing that we're waiting for is tomorrow they're going to make public the scores on the water storage project for uh, for Prop 1. Uh, and every this is another thing we're all looking forward to seeing. Um, a lot of these projects you know, the the people putting them forward got to take a shot at, you know, what public benefits they saw these projects providing. And the commission now has gone in there and taken a look and followed the procedures and kind of, you know, adjusted them accordingly. <laughs> and some of these projects who are near and dear to some people's hearts apparently scored very low. And a low is going to mean, uh, you know, not a lot of money uh, coming from the state for that project. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on these scores and what's going to come out. You know, in a way, the commission's hands are really tied by the legislation that was, you know, the wording in the Prop 1 for these projects. You know, they have to provide a benefit to the Delta and a benefit to statewide uh the water system and water supply doesn't count as a public benefit. So, you know, there's all these different specifications. So the commission, the the interesting thing is I do believe that they wrote the regulations such that at the end the commission will have a little bit of discretion to adjust these scores. But then that, you know, that wasn't the way it was supposed to work. These projects were supposed to compete, you know, not these nine appointed commission members were not supposed to have total discretion on how to hand out $2.7 billion. Well, I am very interested in the continuing discussion of these water issues, especially within the state of California, to see how the drought uh, rolls out. We are hitting a hard stop right now, if I'm not mistaken. And Chris, thank you so much for your perspectives, for your information. And we recommend that people who want more information visit www.mavensnotebook.com. And she also has a bunch of things to take a look at on there. And uh, um, you, can, I, I, you can even in, uh, enroll and get <laughs> daily updates right. of key breaking news <laughs> with respect to water. So we highly recommend that. Yep. And it's all. all right, and, and if you want to contribute, and if you want to contribute to that, it's all tax deductible. That's right. So hey, we want to keep her going because uh, she's the best, best, best source of news in California. So Chris, thanks very much. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. And you're listening. To, right. You're listening you to water. Take care, Chris. Great. We'll be back in a sec. Oh, welcome back to the Water Zone on the KCEA 1050 AM. And just to let anybody who wants to call in and uh, talk to our next guest, please do so. The number is 888-909-1050, or you can call for your local 909-792-5222. We're going to do something a little unusual. Uh, we've done it We've done it twice before, but we're including our ag hosts, aggregation hosts, from our micro-irrigation division, Ms. Inge Bisconer and Mr. Paul McFadden. And we're not tagging up on this one person who's the guest, but this person that we're, I'm going to let Inge introduce is, is really good. Good, really smart, really famous. And we all. Good author. We all wanted a chance to listen live and also ask questions because of this person's reputation and experience and knowledge. I want to be able to say I spoke to her. So, (laughs) Inge, welcome. Paul, welcome. And I'm going to let Inge do the honors to open up the the show portion. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Rob. Um, Yes, Paul and I were fortunate enough to uh, have gotten to meet Sandra Postel, our guest tonight, um, and uh, spent a little time with her, and uh, uh, it was just thrilling to have her as the luncheon keynote at the recent California Irrigation Institute conference in Sacramento, and we're really lucky to have her on the water zone tonight. So uh, welcome to the show, Sandra. Thank you so much, Indy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, for our listening audience, in case somebody doesn't know who you are, I would imagine most people would. Um, you know, you are known as a leading authority and prolific author of international water 
issues. Um, and you're a director of the Global Water Policy Project and co-creator of Change the Course, which is a national water stewardship initiative that was awarded the 2017 U.S. Water Prize for restoring billions of gallons of water to depleted rivers and wetlands. I love that. That is a noble cause. And from 2009 to 2015, you served as Freshwater Fellow of the National Geographic Society, and you've authored Pillar of Sand, Last Oasis, that was turned into a PBS documentary. Uh, your works appeared in Science, Natural History, and Best American Science and Nature Writing. And you have um, a new book, which I assume we'll talk about a little bit um, tonight, called Replenish. And on the cover, Elizabeth Colbert says, Nothing is more important to life than water. And no one knows water better than Sandra Postel. <laughs> so, Sandra, how did you get into this water space anyway? How did you become such an authority on water? Oh, you know, that's a really great question. I, I've known since I was a young teenager, really, that I wanted to do something on behalf of the Earth. And when I left grad school at Duke, my first job was actually with a small consulting company in California, in the Bay Area, um, and I just got put on the water project and just fell in love with it. And it felt like this was a niche that I really wanted to try to fill a little piece of and make a contribution in. And it just grew from there. I kind of got the fresh water bug and, and never let it go. And were, were you one of those kids that, you know, played in the sprinklers and, and uh, just loved to be in the oh, water, too? <laughs> absolutely. And I, I grew up on Long Island. And, you know, my mother loved the beach. And so we spent a lot of time at the ocean. So... Oh, all, yeah. you know, all, all senses, I might have been an ocean conservationist, but no, freshwater conservation was kind of where I landed. Very good. Mike, over to you. You know, I was uh, taken specifically by the Change the Course um, initiative, and I went on site in terms of uh, just getting at uh, what that was about. And I got to tell you, uh, I was very impressed. Could you share with us um, kind of how that development came about and your involvement in that, which is actually converting commitments from individuals to returning water to key rivers and other other places? I mean, physically actually working with folks that are active in, in the field. So if you could share with us uh, that background, I'd sure appreciate it. Sure. Um, so Change the Course is an initiative that was started when I was working with National Geographic. And National Geographic is one of the founding partners of the initiative. Um, and it really came about, um, you know, sort of the short story of it is we had done a lot during my time at, at National Geographic. We had done a lot of um, education work, you know, building tools for online education um, we built a really cool water footprint calculator to help people understand their freshwater footprint. Um, and with this opportunity at National Geographic, I was really, really interested in finding a way that we could make a difference on the ground. And after having lunch with um, a water sustainability person at one of the companies based here in New Mexico, I got back to my office and she wrote me an email and she said, you need to get in touch with Todd Reeve at the Bonneville Environmental Foundation and find out what they're doing. Because they're doing some things that will be really interesting to you. And sure enough, I made a cold call to Todd and within a few hours, we brainstormed our way to this initiative that came to be called Change the Course. And what brought us together was this idea that if we're going to, you know, have a more sustainable water future, we need to not only figure out how to shrink our water footprint, but we have to figure out how to return water to the natural world. And so the idea is to bring the general public, the business community, corporations, and conservation, the conservation community together to do those two things. And so it's, it's, it's grounded in uh, a product that the Bonneville Environmental Foundation created called a water restoration certificate where either an individual or a company can buy a WRC. Each one is worth a thousand gallons and it's a commitment for each purchase to return a thousand gallons of water to the natural world. 
these projects that restore the water are done in, in partnership with on-the-ground conservation groups. They are all third-party certified. They're all scientifically sound. And the idea is to, is to give an accounting for those gallons that are restored so that companies can report on their annual report. We not only save so much water in our factory, we also return X number of gallons to the natural world to better balance our impact, our, 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 our footprint on the natural world. So, so it's a way to really build water stewardship into everyday life. Individuals can participate, companies participate, and we partner on the ground with, with conservation groups like the Nature Conservancy, Trout Unlimited, and so on. And so far, we have participated in 40 different projects with support from 40 different corporations, and we have restored 8 billion gallons of water to depleted rivers, wetlands, groundwater, aquifers across 11 states and uh, Mexico, the, the work that's going on now to restore the Colorado River Delta in Mexico, we are part of. So it's been a tremendous initiative, um, and I think the recognition given to us this past year by, uh, you know, having changed the course, win the U.S. Water Prize, was just a great validation for us that we're on to something, that this is uh, an initiative that's making a difference, that individuals and companies want to be a part of this, and that we are, in fact, beginning to do what we set out to do, which was to build a society-wide movement of, of water stewardship. Uh, Sandra, oh, this is Paul. Um, I had a, a, a kind of a follow-up question to that. Um, obviously, you've written several books, including Pillar of Sand, The Last Oasis, which was uh, made into a PBS uh, documentary, along with your uh, most re recent book, Replenish. And my question is, uh, is there a common theme or message or summary or um, main message, if you will, uh, to this, uh, to these writings, to your writings and uh, and the documentaries and other things that you've published? Is there some main focal point or message you want to get out with uh, with those specifically with those things? You know, that's a good question too. I would I would say what really motivates me is. That water is the basis of life. Um, you know, we, we treat it as a, as a resource. We often treat it as a commodity. Um, but fundamentally, it is the basis of life on, on this amazing planet. And, and if we don't use it wisely enough, there are serious consequences to that. Um, you know, right now, we're losing freshwater species faster than terrestrial species. You know, this fish and, and, and amphibians and reptiles and mussels and, you know, the, the diversity of life in fresh water is very much at risk because of the way we're managing water. So, so I have a, you know, a deep regard for the diversity of life, the, the creation that's here, and I feel that the way we use water and manage water and value water is just so important to sustaining that, that diversity of life on Earth. And so I think that's really what drives me. And so, you know, the fact that water is finite is, is, a, is just a hard truth that we need to sort of embrace. And, and that combination of water is finite, it's the basis of life, says to me we have to exercise stewardship more deeply than maybe we do now. And so really all of my books have that theme. You know, in Last Oasis, I was, this book came out originally in 1992, um, and so water scarcity as a global concern wasn't really on the map yet. It was just starting to really emerge at, at that point. And so I just felt like we needed to sort of give a wake-up call to just how serious the water problem is likely to become. And then Pillar of Sand, I've always been interested in agriculture and farming and, and how we can accommodate our needs for food security and a healthy environment. And so... Uh, and I'm also a real history buff, and so, and so Pillar of Sand was really looking at the history of sustainability in terms of agriculture, the history of irrigated agriculture, and, and what its future might be, and how we, can, how we can negotiate a path that builds food security, but also, you know, supports the, the environment. Um, and, then, and then Replenish is really a look at, um, you know, it, it's an optimistic book that says, yes, the water cycle is broken, whether we look at groundwater aquifers, the state of our soils, uh, the state of rivers, 
the state of our watersheds. We see all kinds of signs that our water cycle is broken. But I tell these stories that give a very clear message that we can fix it if we put our minds to it. And it's through creative collaborations, through some risk-taking, trying new things, uh, innovative technology, innovative ideas, um, and these partnerships, often among unlikely partners, you know, ranchers working with conservationists, farmers working with conservationists and local uh, uh, governments and so on, a whole variety of different interesting partnerships that have produced these very impressive results. And the question is, you know, how do we scale that up? How do we really fix this water cycle and see more of these innovations coming alive? It's uh, quite refreshing to see these folks that that historically have, generalizing again, but historically have not always seen eye to eye or even tried to work together. And I I agree with you, Sandra. I'm beginning to see more and more of this. And... uh, um, collaboration and it's it's exciting and it's, it's truly refreshing and and uh, certainly today if uh, as as we go forward i uh, i would hope that we would see a lot more of that you know i completely agree and i think this is the, the examples in the book were so inspiring to me you know and i i think we just don't do ourselves a, a service to dig in our heels when it comes to water and say this is the environment's water, this is ag's water, this is industry's water, this, this is city's water. It's all, in a sense, one water. And when we look at the multiple benefits that can emerge from these collaborations, it's, it's really amazing. And every time you get a situation where you're doing something that's good for irrigators and something good for the environment and something good for the community, you have just multiplied the value of water. You know, we're getting a lot more benefit from that gallon than we did before. You know, I look at a project in California like the Bird Returns Project, which is a collaboration between rice farmers and the Nature Conservancy and, you know, and, and innovative technology that helps us know when, and, and Change the Course was a partner on this project too, a minor player, but a partner nonetheless. You know, looking at how can we support this, with having lost 90% of the wetlands in California, how can we use those rice fields, you know, to also create wetland habitat at crucial times for migratory bird populations. That's a brilliant idea. And rice farmers are engaged, and the conservation community is engaged, and there's, again, a win-win in that. Um, And so I I just find those kinds of projects very inspiring, and they're very boundary-busting. You know, we don't have to say it's this or that. It's it's a project that's going to benefit a lot of different different sectors. Sandra, I I heard, uh, I was talking to Inge the other day, and I was coming up with some additional questions, and uh, she said, you actually talked about what I'm going to ask you, so I, I didn't know that until uh, till before. But in the podcast that I heard, you were talking about the amount of carbon in soil and how that impacts how much water the soil can retain. And, you know, I think we all know that soil health is extremely important, but what I was, I was surprised by how much, and the statistic you provided, that you provided was that increasing the carbon levels in soil by one percentage point would enable an acre of soil to hold an additional 18,000 gallons of water. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, and, you know, I, I said this at the conference the other day, that <laughs> this was the, the portion of the book that, um, that I learned the most in researching. You know, I've been working on water for 25 years, 30 years, however long it's been, and I myself had not paid enough attention to the importance of that soil reservoir in terms of its potential to improve food security, give us resilience, give farmers resilience in times of drought, and therefore give society greater food security. Um, it just was something I hadn't focused on. And what really opened my eyes was I was speaking at a conference um, uh, at one time that was focused on the various elements of food, so soils and seeds and water and so on. I was there to talk about water, and there was a farmer from North Dakota um, who was talking about soil. And, and there were a number of soil, a great number of soil scientists in, in, in that conference as well. And when I came away from that day, I realized this is something I really need to pay attention to. And so it was a, it was a, terrific chapter of my book to both research and, and learn about and then try to communicate about, because I think it's very overlooked. Um, you know, just the fact that the world's soils 
are capable of holding eight times as much water as all the world's rivers combined. But we've allowed that reservoir in the soil to shrink by overplowing, by not planting cover crops, leaving soils, you know, farmland soils barren and therefore subject to wind erosion, soil erosion, compaction. And so by virtue of these other techniques, no-till agriculture, uh, planting cover crops, Dave Brown, the, the farmer from North Dakota, had a great line. He said he wants to have a living root in the soil at all times. And that living root is, is creating that healthier soil. And, and, and so the ability to actively replenish and rejuvenate these soils is, is very evident when you look at stories like Dave Brown. So, you know, the idea that if we can bring the, the organic carbon content of soils from 4% to 5% or 3% to 4%, one percentage point, and add 18,000 gallons of water an acre to the soil, well, that's, that's building resilience to drought. And that's really what motivated this farmer that I write about in North Dakota. He'd come through three years of bad drought, lost a lot of money, lost his crops, and realized he needed to do something differently. And he started planting what's become called a cover crop cocktail, a mixture of cover crops that work well together, that add nitrogen to the soil so he could reduce its fertilizer use dramatically. That soil captures uh, the carbon and, and basically allows more water to be retained. And so his yields went up, his profits went up, his use of fertilizer and chemicals went down, and, you know, he just, he just is now, I think, one of the you know, champions of this approach. But when you look at our U.S. farmland base, only 3% of it is cover crop. So this is a huge opportunity uh, to build that soil reservoir throughout the country. This is not just a Western issue. In fact, you know, the Mississippi Basin, where you get a lot of rain-fed agriculture going on, much less irrigation than in the West, could benefit enormously from this, and it would improve the dead zone down in the Gulf that's affecting the fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico because these soils tend to uh, reduce runoff and capture that nitrogen and hold it. And you'd have much less, with cover cropping especially, much less runoff of nitrogen, which is fueling the dead zone down in the Gulf of Mexico. So again, multiple benefits, good for farmers, good for the land, good for the water. Well, that's where it's uh, all Sandra, down. this is Paul again. I'm we're sorry. The, um, yeah, go no, go ahead. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Ingi. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by this uh, uh, partnerships and collaborations that you talked about. We talked about earlier in the in the interview, and I know your new book that you that has just been released, uh, entitled "Replenish," talks about those things and how, in your opinion, we can scale those uh, uh, projects up, collaborations and, and such. Could you give us a, f a couple of examples of, of those successful partnerships uh, and, and the success? And then uh, on a, as a follow-up question, uh, for those who want to uh, purchase a copy of your book, how do we go about uh, about doing that, please? Sure. Well, thank you for, for, for prompting me to mention that. Um, well, there are so many examples, and virtually all of them include these these interesting collaborations. Uh, the one I just mentioned uh, is, is a good one. When it comes to uh, rivers, you know, one that we've really enjoyed working on, it changed the course, and that I write about in the book, um, is along the Verde River in Arizona, uh, which is, of course, one of the uh, lifelines of the, of, the, of the Southwest. It is very important to, um, if, you know, there's a rich riparian habitat along the river that's very important to birds and fish and wildlife, um, and yet the irrigation uh, system surrounding the river in the Verde Valley has you know, continued to be operated pretty much as it's been operated for the last 150 years, which is you know, through an extensive ditch system where farmers effectively have taken virtually the entire flow of the river out of the river and into the ditch system, such that during the prime irrigation season, you know, five, six, seven, eight miles of the river would, would go dry. Uh, for, for, for a period of time. And so it was an interesting collaboration of, in this case, the Nature Conservancy with a very uh, entrepreneurial hydrologist 
who moved into the valley and spent a lot of time listening to the irrigators and, and, and talking extensively with them about how this ditch system works, how it might work differently. They did a field trip together to, to, to look at one of these um, automated head gates and how they work. So the point here being a lot of time building trust. You know, when a conservation person comes in and starts to think about an irrigation system, the immediate fear is they're coming to take our water. Um, understandably so. And so there was an initial fear, an initial concern about what was going on, but it took some building of trust. And then the irrigators got comfortable with the idea, and when it became clear that nobody was going to lose any water they needed, and this automated head gate was, was put in, um, and farmers were able to take just the water they needed out of the river and leave the rest in the river. It was not, this is not rocket science, but it took, you know, a, a technology that at the time was not going to be paid for by the irrigators. Why would they? Um, but money came in through, partly through Change the Course. We brought in corporate sponsors to help fund this. TNC themselves brought in additional money from other sponsors, and it was made to work. Um, and it was a collaboration, again, among the business community, among the conservation community, and among the irrigators. And it's a great example of this triple win, you know, where the irrigators did not lose any production. They did not lose any water they needed. The farmers at the end of the ditch system, um, I went to the valley with, with a team from National Geographic to produce some videos about this project, and they spoke on camera about they thought this project was was really good. They lost, they had lost nothing. The community has a healthier river flowing through it, so it's better for tourism. It's better for recreation, which brings in dollars to Camp Verde, the main town in the valley. And it's, of course, good for habitat for the fish, wildlife, and birds. And so the, it, nobody lost, everybody gained. And the value of water in that valley is greatly increased by a simple measure to get smarter about how we use the water. That's all it was, was getting smarter about how we use it and manage it and bring in an innovative technology that can make that work. Let's move on to... Um, Actually, can I, can I say oh, one more thing? Oh, absolutely. Asked, absolutely, please. Yeah, there's, there's, there are many other examples, but before I forget, you asked how people can buy the book if they're interested. And um, obviously, you, you can go on Amazon and, and buy it through Amazon. It's available there and easy to buy on Amazon.com. It's also available directly through uh, my publisher, Island Press, at their website. Um, and if you're in a city and you have a favorite independent bookstore, I always encourage the support of independent bookstores. Uh, they may not have it in stock, but they'll order it for you usually. So I would say those are the three. Barnes & Noble, of course, has it as well. So those are a variety of ways to um, to purchase the book. Well, I was, Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I was very fortunate. I have a, had a friend, uh, since I wasn't able to make the California <laughs> Irrigation Institute, I have a friend that uh, got me an autograph uh, book from uh, autographed by you. So uh, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on that. So I recommend well, uh, it. Rob, good reading. Rob and Mike, you, uh, you will have them Wednesday because they're being hand-delivered to you by Paul when he gets together with you guys on Wednesday. Oh, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Looking well, actually, I get them that. first because Paul's meeting at my, my house so we can go to this other event that we have. Oh. <laughs> and we, have to, we have to promise we have to go to work. We can't sit and read the book uh, during business Although Although I think it would be an excellent investment of our time because, oh, yeah. you know, no, no doubt <laughs> just, about just think it. of this, Paul. We can sit around my pool. We can go in the jacuzzi. We can read. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll um, as we approach here the uh, the end of the hour. Um, it's been very, very. In, uh, we got lots of time. We've got lots of time, but I, I want to be have uh, nine whole minutes. Yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and I wanted to to say um, I am going to personally look at what it takes to become <clears throat> a sponsor of Change the Course. That's how impressed I was with uh, the activity there. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, there's already a couple of uh, irrigation industry uh, companies that are there, so I think uh, Toro would be well. Well, we're going to well pick. Placed. We're going to pick a spot out so we're featured in the, in the that's top right, of this. That's right. That's right. So anyway, we we, so we, would, we we would be we would be more than happy to talk with you about that. Oh, so. great, great. We we definitely do want to definitely want to talk about that because, uh, like I say, I just think that active element of people on the 
front lines, you know, on the ground, doing, returning that water to uh, that natural world, as you said, I think that that really strikes me as, as so proactive and, and, and effective. So. Yeah, plus we have a nice big well, red you know, logo. It's, it's in a way, and it, what, you know, the way we think about it is it's sort of redefining what, what sustainability really is. You know, I mean, we have these efficient irrigation technologies, such as drip irrigation. We have ways of recycling water within factories, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever the product is that's being made. But the challenge is a little more than that now. It's because we have this state of depletion all around us, depletion of rivers, of aquifers, of wetlands. We need to go above and beyond that and give something back. And that's sort of the new thinking. You know, yes, let's do what we can within our four walls, whether it's making beer, making coffee, whatever it is we do as a company, and then go beyond that. Conserve, conserve, conserve. Use water efficiently, but but work with us to help give water back to the environment. And that's sort of a new challenge. And, um, and I think it's starting to take on as kind of a redefinition of what uh, stewardship is and what, it, what sustainability needs to be. Well, I just think uh, continuing down the path of reinforcing and communicating this water ethic where we value water for its true you know, true source, true, true value, and, and um, treat it as, a, as that very valuable resource that it is. As you mentioned, it uh, contributes to life itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Without it, we, we, we don't have life, and it affects our economy. It affects agriculture. It affects our Don't you think people take, that, people take that for granted? We really, the education portion is so important to, to really get people to understand that. They hear the words. Yeah, and I think I think ultimately it's going to be a, a personal experience that probably you know yeah. makes that change. But um, given the amount of time that's left, I thought, um, is there anything specific about how we think about water management, uh, Sandra, that that needs to change to respond to the big challenges ahead? Well, I think it's really uh, keeping in mind this water cycle all around us. I mean, we, we sort of don't focus on it because it's there all the time. But really realizing that that is the planet and the economy's greatest asset, you know, and, and what can we do to make it, to make it healthier? Um, what can we do as an individual, as a community, as a company, um, as, a, as a state or federal government worker? What can we do to, to make this water cycle healthier? And... And that everything depends on that. And so I think it's that sort of mindset that, that we need to cultivate. You know, we've, you know, we've built a very, uh, very, very successful water system when you think about it. I mean, most of us turn on the tap, water comes out, and we don't need to think about it. Um, and that's really how good our system is most of the time. That's not true everywhere. But obviously, we have the stories of Flint, Michigan, and we have stories of wells running dry in some very poor parts of California during the drought, so it's not universally so, but for most of us, we turn on the tap and there it is, and we don't have to give it much thought. So hats off to the engineers that have built a system where we have abundant, clean, safe water virtually all of the time. Um, But the state of our aquifers, the state of our rivers, the state of our soils says, we have some repairing to do, we have some fixing to do, and so the the inspiration of the book is really to, you know, to, to take charge of that and, and to embrace that challenge. And uh, I found the, the people I met in the course of writing this, the, the, um, the innovation, the stories, just incredibly inspiring. You know, one of the interesting things, getting back to soils, um, was uh, what I learned about, about raising cattle. You know, we cattle these days get a really bad rap. You know, they're blamed for water pollution, overgrazing land degradation, even climate change, because they emit methane, and, and that's true. But there's a new line of, of, of technique called, you know, rotational grazing, holistic grazing, that manages cattle to sort of mimic the way bison moved on the range, in this kind of um, high-density, short-duration grazing, where you move cattle from paddock to paddock at specified times, um, and find that the soils improve, the hoof action and the manure fertilize the soil, improve infiltration, which means the grassland habitat improves, which means that you're improving habitat 
for birds, for grassland birds. And it was fascinating to me. I visited a couple of these ranches, one in Texas, one in New Mexico. And the one in New Mexico is now a pilot ranch for the National Audubon Society, which has developed a, this really is amazing, has developed a bird-friendly beach certification. (laughs) So working with private ranchers to manage their cattle in such a way that they're improving the landscape, improving the grassland habitat which means it's going to be better for birds. And grassland birds are among the most threatened types of birds in in North America. And so they're working now with over 40 different ranches, private ranchers, to develop this idea and and to develop these techniques of grazing, monitor what's happening to the grassland habitat, and certify the beef that comes from these cattle as bird friendly beef. And so it's a market enterprise that's going to help these ranchers that are doing well by doing, you know, good management of their, of their cattle. I just think this is a kind of incredibly creative collaboration between, you know, a, a conservation organization and private ranchers who want to do better by the land and by their animals. Um, and, again, a great example of what collaboration can do. And good for consumers who want to continue to eat meat, but want that meat to be produced in a way that's better for the earth. And I I think millennials are going to lead the way in terms of valuing those very things that you just reviewed and creating that competitive nexus that that will reinforce more of those earth-friendly activities. Yeah. So, well, Angie, if you can can end it up for us, we've got a couple minutes. Yeah, we got about a minute. I just say the message is win, win, win. We need to find these collaborations. Uh, Sandra, I think we could uh, easily invite you on again if you're willing. There's so many more um, stories and examples that you could give. I, I would like to just briefly ask you, since you were out in California at the California Irrigation Institute Conference uh, this last week, what did you think of it? It's in its 56th year, and it kind of uniquely combines ag, urban, and environmental interests because hey, we're all people that eat and drink and we're dependent on the environment, so all three of those need to win for any of us to survive, and that's what we try to convey in the conference. Uh, Did you enjoy yourself? Oh, I really did enjoy myself. There were so many interesting people and interesting conversations there. I had the benefit of, you know, being there for the whole conference, which was terrific, Um, and I just see the potential for collaboration there, you know, a lot's changed in the course of the half cent- more than half century that the conference has been happening. And, you know, I think the potential for such an interesting group from the urban environment and ag sectors and different generations of, of people coming together, the potential for developing some new and interesting collaborations is right there. <laughs>